0: Welcome to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast, where we talk with some of the greatest names from the stadium and stage about the music and sports that shaped their lives. I'm John Adams. In my years of working in the music and sports arenas, I've experienced firsthand the surprising connections between these two industries. Together through this podcast, we will explore this crossover relationship. All of our podcasts have an accompanying Spotify playlist that showcases the music we discuss with each of our guests. Search for The Score on Spotify. Today's guest is a rock bassist who joined the band The Jellyfish in 1992. After the release of Spilt Milk and the subsequent tour, The Jellyfish broke up. He then went on to work with several artists and bands, including Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, the Finn Brothers, Sheryl Crow, and the Uma Jets. In 2017, our guest reconnected with former members of the Jellyfish, Roger Manning and Eric Dover, to form the band The Licorice Quartet. We will chat with Tim Smith when we return. When we move, we're better. It's when we stand still that we're in trouble. We believe that having equal opportunity to be active and to play is the way we achieve our full potential. You deserve the chance to use sport to unlock everything you want to be and all you want to do. We start today to change tomorrow so that every girl and woman can realize her power. It's her time. It's our time. All girls. All women. All sports. Visit womensportsfoundation.org to learn more, donate or shop for a good cause. And welcome back to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast. I'd like to welcome to the show former bassist from the rock band The Jellyfish and current bassist from the Licorice Quartet, Tim Smith. How are you, Tim? I'm good. How are you? All is good over here. I, we're we're happy I get to talk some some music and sports with you, so it's a good day for me.
1: Awesome. I'm ready to do it.
0: Now, I hear that you're you're a pretty big baseball fan. Is that right?
1: I am, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And being in the Atlanta area, or you've lived there for a little while at least, were you born and raised there as well, or have you just lived there for the, the past little while?
1: No, I wasn't born here. I was born in Louisiana. Um, or raised in Louisiana, rather. But I moved to Atlanta. Um, you know, the Braves were... I'd never been to a city that had a sports team and I kind of started following them. It was in sort of the down years in the eighties. And then in the early nineties, when they started to make a big turnaround, it just became a thing here in Atlanta. It really brought the city together. Um, You know, the whole, the beginnings of all the chanting and all that stuff were happening. And it just, it, it, it brought the city together in a way that I haven't really experienced since. And, I got caught up into it to the point that, you know, I started paying attention to all the players and I remember getting the paper where the, the year that John Shorholt had come in and had uh, brought in Terry Pendleton and Sid Bream and all these people and it was like, wow, that's a not even really as much of a baseball follower, but it was it was it was such a big turnaround, the, the amount of people that he brought in, Raphael Belliard and all these different folks, uh, that I knew something was worth paying attention to and the fact that they actually went from Worst to first in '91 was, uh, you know, a pretty amazing thing to, to follow. So I, I I got the bug early, and kind of have stayed with it. Now the great thing I think about baseball is that once you get passionate about a, a team, you're clearly passionate about the players. So when some of the players started to go to other teams, or you start paying attention to folks like when we got Fred McGriff from San Diego and stuff, it just it's an all encapsulating thing. Now I'm not as deep into it by doing fantasy stuff I, I, I have a little bit more time in my day that i have to fill with other things but um I, i'm pretty involved in it i, I have to say I, I find baseball as a musician especially from touring around and stuff because gosh i would be away from atlanta from uh other band. I played with cheryl crow and mm-hmm. toured with her for 14 years and um other folks so baseball became the glue for me uh being on the road and being able to you know read the paper wherever in the world and find out the scores and and so, yeah, it's been a big part of my
0: life for a long time. Especially with those those Braves teams of the the, the 90s into the early aughts with that success of Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz and you had Ron Gant and just a, a, an, an enormous Chipper Jones. A great mm. success with those teams. And a lot of people attribute that success to the mindset and the coaching of Bobby Cox.
1: I think so. I mean, you know, Bobby had been around and had been a- – uh, a fairly successful coach in, in, in Toronto and stuff. And have been a GM and I've actually met, I've run into Bobby a couple of times, uh, just flying around and he is a uh, quintessential baseball man. And I, was, I was on a plane and he was like shaking hands with the, the older woman who was sitting next to him. Hi, I'm Bobby. And they just sat there and, and, you know, chewed the whatever. And uh, he, he's just, it was actually the day uh, after we lost Raphael for call. And I, I, Didn't want to bother him, but when we got off the plane, I said, uh, is it true about Raphael Percal? And he said, yeah, we couldn't keep him, and he was really upset about it. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, I I think Bobby had a lot to do with it. I think he let players play the game the way they wanted to play, although I think he had a few rules about things. I don't think he could have a beard and (laughs) stuff like that. Uh, And, you know, he stuck up for his players. I I think it's a little funny that he got such a big thing about uh, getting thrown out of so many games, but Mm – I don't think he had a bad bone in his body, really. I think he he did it for, uh, you know, some of the showbiz stuff that you you do in in baseball that that, uh, was fine. But I I like Bobby Cox.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the gig. You know, the players can't argue balls and strikes and can't go out there and, or rather, shouldn't go out there and create a ruckus with the umpire. But that's the job of the manager, to speak up for the players when the players can't speak up for themselves. So, to go out there and to be fiery and to get in the face of an umpire, he handled those situations just like Tommy Lasorda did out here in Los Angeles. So, I can relate to that
1: 100%. Yeah, and it, I think it's it, it's sort of a baseball uh, rule, too. I mean, your coach is your leader, and let him do all that kind of stuff, and then players can just be themselves, but in a... Um, I don't know. I I find I'm I'm struggling a little bit with some of the things that have been happening in the last few years. I know everybody keeps saying just let them play and stuff, but Mm -hmm. I guess I grew up a little bit more where the showboating thing, I just don't enjoy it as much. Even some of the Braves players now, uh, I struggle with some of that uh, stuff. So, yeah, I'd rather see it be pinned on on one guy who becomes the focal point of that uh, emotional outburst stuff when there is a problem.
0: I find it interesting that you said that baseball was kind of the glue that you had when or the constant when you were touring and when you're on the road and when you have all these things that are hitting you that was your glue your 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 constant through the whole time and baseball has been that for what 150 years on yeah about 150 years so it's the numbers are the same the 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 strategy is is the same little tweaks to rules will happen but but baseball is constant, and I, I find that interesting that that was what you leaned on or relied on while you were touring.
1: Well, it's not dissimilar from what touring is, which is going around to uh, different cities and performing your best every night. So I, I, I suppose there's a little bit of a similarity there. I, I just found that I could remember if I was somewhere where I didn't want to be or, or it was just being was struggling with some of the... Time being away from home or whatever it was a thing to be able to turn on in those days TBS and go there's Atlanta I could see it on my TV or on, on you know a cable station somewhere or, or in Japan it, I, because it of the hour difference I'd be watching games in the morning hmm. there in Japan uh, you know I, I remember we were in Japan once and um, uh, Bill Murray was filming the, the movie there uh, I can't remember the name
0: of the movie Lost in, um, lost in Translation
1: Lost in Translation and the hotel that, that we were staying in was the hotel they were shooting that in. And it was during the World Series when I think it was the Angels and I can't giants? remember who it was. Was it the Giants then? Maybe. Okay. But every morning, because they would shoot all night, and we would get in, uh, you know, after we would play a bunch of shows in Tokyo, but we'd stay in one place. Or, or we'd move around, uh, play different places, but we would stay in one hotel in Tokyo. Anyway... Mm-hmm. We would see, I would see Bill Murray every morning or late at night when we get back from playing our show and he was getting up to do his filming and he would be talking about the game <laughs> and, uh, cause he's a huge baseball guy. Yes. And, uh, the fact that we were both in Japan talking about, uh, you know, the passion of baseball was, was, was just so cool. And, and again, it was just a glue for me. Even being in Japan, I got to go to a, a series game in Japan and. Oh, neat. what that experience was like. That was, you know, getting instead of bags of uh, popcorn, I was getting a bag of edamame, which was awesome.
0: (laughs) That's cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah. The the Japanese players and the fans have such a respect for the game. And there is part of me that wishes some of that would translate here.
1: I won't disagree with you. Uh, And I would say that in, in Japan, they are like that respectfully about pretty much anything, uh, even in music. Um, The Japanese fans that I've got to play for and some of them that I've gotten to know are as dedicated and as involved and as knowledgeable about music than anybody I've met in America. And I, I, it blows my mind. Um, You know, I've had conversations with guys that can barely speak English that know everything that I've ever done. have uh <clears throat> bootlegs of things. <laughs> I'm like, "Wow, I didn't even know that was out." And uh we'll have a real conversation about music. And I've said this before, even going to Europe and stuff, I think music is uh treated a different way in different places. Uh yeah. some good, some bad. I think in America it's such a given with such a big country and so many bands, so many places to go and experience live music or used to be until quite recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of taken for granted. And, um, yeah, so going to a place like Japan and uh, getting to meet folks that are, are genuinely going out of their way to come see you because they know what you've done to get mm-hmm. there is a, a pretty special thing.
0: When you moved to Atlanta, you were going to games at Fulton County Stadium. And then yes. then there was Turner Field. And mm-hmm. now there's Truest Park, which was formerly SunTrust Park. And, and that park is only a couple years old. Baseball stadiums seem to be changing at just a rapid pace right now. And right now, the, the Diamondbacks, who have a, a stadium who that's only about 20, 22 years old, they're discussing plans for a possible new stadium as well. Do you think that, that these changing of stadiums has any effect on the game or on the, 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 the local team itself?
1: Well, I don't know about Arizona. I know in Atlanta what's happened is that the Braves basically want to get a piece of everything that's a part of that experience, including mm-hmm. when you're not at the game. So, uh, you know, I've been to the new stadium a few times. It's not technically in Atlanta. It's in Cobb County. Mm-hmm. I call them the Cobb County Braves. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't like it. I think it's a, uh, just a money move. Not that I'm against anybody making money or owners doing whatever they want, but they, sure. they basically corralled everybody to go to this one place like a theme park and have super overpriced things. You know, some of it's cool, and they, they, they're trying to bridge a gap. There's a live venue there. the are to see bands like the Shins there and stuff. And it's all sort of there. It's an entertainment complex, but it's just it's so derivative of real places like, you know, going to Wrigley Field in Chicago or something like that. They, they, they tried to make something out of, you know, I, and I look, the Brave Stadium when it was downtown was, was originally built for the Olympics. I get all that. But there was some history there. Uh, because Fulton County was next door. It's still there. That Luckily, Georgia State has bought the whole complex and sort of treating it with a little bit more. And they're going to rebuild the, the baseball stadium what the original Fulton County Stadium where it was. Uh, but being downtown, downtown in the heart of the city and what that meant and being a part of the city um, was important. Mm-hmm. And I think today's corporate-driven uh, stuff is sort of the de rigueur, I guess, of... Uh, <laughs> What sports are how they're being run, and and I, I understand that it's a money thing. They can make more money to support the payrolls by having a piece of, the parking and the merchandise and all the you know blah 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 things you got to buy. But for me, the experience has not been, you know, it just it's just too uh, contrived for me personally.
0: Have you ever been to uh, Fenway Park or Wrigley Field? Those older, classic, yep. very downtown parks.
1: Yeah, I've, I've been to, to, I think there's only, I did, I worked this out once, but there's only a few that I haven't been to now in, in the United States. I don't think I've been to Tampa Bay, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think I've been, I think that maybe one other.
0: Oh, that's crazy. I haven't been to
1: Washington. I haven't been to Washington. Um, but, you know, it, it's, uh, and I love the differences, I love history you know, I have to say, I went to a, a, par, a game at Fenway once where it was so bloody hot, uh, in the summer and stifling standing room only. I, it was not a great experience, <laughs> uh, but I've had a chance to actually play there with Cheryl Crow on the field. We opened for, mm. uh, we played there with a bunch of different people. I think it was, um, I can't remember if it was the Rolling Stones or something like that, but I actually got to go kind of behind the things and, and the scoreboard and stuff like that. I love all that stuff. And the owner of, uh, of the uh, the Red Sox was a Sheryl Crow fan I remember being kind of waiting around in the wings trying to to eat in you know the dressing room area or whatever and he walked by I kind of knew who he was but I, I just kind of got out of his way and as I walked by he yelled out my name and he said Tim and I went yes sir <laughs> he said you're Tim Smith from Sheryl LeBan and I went yes I am and he said I'm a huge fan we watch your CD of you playing with Eric Clapton all the time and so we hung out, and uh, and he was a huge fan and wanted us to go like out on his yacht the next day, and just, <laughs> uh, which we couldn't do unfortunately. And then I found out later he was uh, also the part owner of the um, Liverpool soccer team. Wow. So I was playing with uh, Noel Gallagher a few years ago, and they're all big, you know, Premier League fans. And a couple of guys in the band were from Liverpool, and they were like. You, you've actually talked to that guy. Do you think you can get me tickets to the <laughs> games and stuff? I'm like, yeah, we didn't really talk about that. We talked about baseball. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, again, today I'm speaking with Licorice Quartet bassist Tim Smith. And the, get, getting to the music a little bit, there it's the Licorice Quartet, but there are three of you. So how does how does that work out? Where did the name come from?
1: Uh, the name came from a movie, an early seventies movie. That's sort of a, an Italian, uh, kind of a soft porn movie, frankly, uh, <laughs> that, that, that Roger was, uh, aware of uh, Roger Manning, my musical partner. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of a cheesy, sort of like beyond the Valley of the Dolls, sort of Russ Myers type mm-hmm. thing. Some people think he's a brilliant, uh, the, the, the gentleman who, uh, uh, directed that movie, um, think he's you know a brilliant dude or whatever it, it's sort of a cheesy thing but but we like the name uh yes there are only three of us but because it's it, you know people there's a, there's a question for people to ask us so that, that's what <laughs> kind of why we went with it you know it's kind of like the thompson twins was not two people it was three people
0: yes so. yes <laughs> and uh, you recently released your first ep which is a uh, threesome volume one and yep. there are two more EPs that are scheduled over the next 18 months, which is very exciting. And I, I wanted to, to, to get your thoughts on the state of the music industry because it seems to be geared toward singles and EPs again, much like it was in the 50s and early 60s and not necessarily in support of full LPs and albums because there are very few retail locations now. What, what's your feeling on uh, on the, the state of the industry and releasing EPs rather than LPs?
1: Yeah, I mean, I as a musician, it, it's uh, I think there's good and bad. I think the good mm-hmm. thing is that it allows bands like ours that are sort of self-funded uh, to not have to make such a commitment to a, a full-length record just in the expense of that many songs and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other side of the coin is that just te- technologically speaking and one of the reasons why we uh, decided to work with our label label logic was they were giving us all this information that said look when people buy a full CD they're only listening to on average women are listening to four songs men are listening to five songs. Mm-hmm. So some of the, some of the analytics were, were telling us that you know we could record the same amount of music but we could do it over time where we can put something out, hopefully recoup some of that so we can go and do the next one. Uh, the record record industry, as, as I knew it when I got into this, so the 80s, just doesn't exist anymore, even if you were signed to mm-hmm. a major label. And, and so the budgets have, have dried up. It's become way more of a DIY sort of thing. And it allows us to focus more on a few songs that we can really hone in on for ourselves as as artists and not feel like we we've spent all the it took us two years to get it all done just by the fact that all three of us are all we're also touring sidemen with different people roger manning plays with beck and beck's band and Mm -hmm. and i was doing what i said i was doing and then uh eric was doing some other things with other people like uh, alice cooper and such so you know we, we put this together between our sort of our day job if you will and so it's allowing us to focus on things a little bit more without the, the full-on expense of what would be almost an untenable situation for us as self-funded musicians.
0: Well, it's a it's a great philosophy too, because we've seen attention span just dwindle. Nobody's going to sit through an entire album anymore. They're going to cherry-pick tracks. So an EP really feeds into, into, I guess, the social construct today.
1: Yeah, I think that's become a big part of it as well. We've We've Try to invest ourselves more on the social media side, even sort of kicking and screaming about it as, as older folks. But, yes. but the reality is, it's, is it's allowed us to get more connected. So it, it's mm. the whole thing about you, you, what you put in, you get out. You what you you know, how much more time I've invested on talking to fans from all over the world on Facebook or Instagram has been you know, a lot of fun for me. And uh, while not everybody in the band has time to do all that or whatever, it's we're also doing some things where we're, ha- we're sharing some experiences on a website that we sell, whether it's creating a birthday song for somebody who's a big <laughs> fan or, you know, having us sing on their records or their songs. We have a lot of musicians that follow us. Um, so there are some different ways for us to, to be connected that aren't just go buy a record and I think that's the real thing that we've learned that is that the music, while it was always supposed to be about the music, and it is for us in a certain way, there's all these other opportunities for us to be connected to folks that are a little bit outside the the norm that are actually a little bit more intimate than just putting on a record. So, you know, it's a fine line. You try not to do things that, like, I'm not going to come over and clean your, your yard for you. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's almost... It's almost in that realm of you know sharing an experience where you know Mm -hmm. folks are paying money to go have dinner with us or whatever, just to get to know each other and 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 share some time together. I think has become a a new way of modeling our our stuff.
0: Do you enjoy the social media game as part of that? Mm, Yes and
1: no. I mean, I I you know I'm a pretty uh, socially active person outside of the band, but I'm having to kind of like. And it's good for me to, to not put my political hat on uh, mm-hmm. for that and just talk about music. So that part of it is good. You know, obviously, I'd love to be able to have deeper conversations about what our music is about or what it means. Um, what, you know, what what more, a more in-depth conversation can be. And so part of what we've been able to do is put out some sort of Zoom meetings of us. Answering folks' questions so we can get a little bit more into detail about it for those who want to listen through all that. And I've, I've said this about any kind of medium. I, I even think that politically, like debates, become a, just a, a cheerleader thing of, of sound bites. I would happily mm-hmm. pay if I had to to listen to two candidates sit down and be fact checked on what they're saying as they say it and get into some real nitty gritty of detail about what's being done and what's being said. And, mm-hmm. and that in a musical sense is what we've spent our time pretty involved in making music that's pretty detailed and layered and intricate and has a lot going on. And we're finding there are people out there that still like that and are, uh, finding us and that's, that's awesome. So we'll find our little place mm-hmm. and hopefully build on it.
0: And the standout track to me on, on the EP is Bluebirds Blues. I think the, the musicianship is intricate and, and phenomenal. And, the harmonies have, I, I, I want to say, an almost ELO quality to them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, thank you for saying that. Um, it's a style of singing. I have to say that <laughs> a lot of people don't really know how to do, and, and the folks in ELO and even the Beatles did that in a way that uh, it, it takes time and sitting down and mapping out where the harmonies are, and, and to do that is is a skill set that Roger's been working on since our Jellyfish days and, and, and before and beyond, so... Yeah, it's just something that is, almost sounds novel to some people these days, but it's not easy to do, and we're really proud of, mm-hmm. of, of that song and what we did with that in the harmonies.
0: Well, Tim, thank you for coming on with me today. I really appreciate your time. This EP is, is really out, outstanding, and I'm very excited to be able to talk with you about this today and about, uh, about baseball and the Braves. Being a Dodger fan, I don't get to talk Braves too much.
1: <laughs> yeah wow what can i say to you about as a dodger fan about the Braves? let's see how did the andrew jones thing work out when he came and worked played with you guys it didn't work out too well did it
0: yeah so thanks I for coming so. on tim
1: <laughs> <laughs> i love andrew jones i'm sorry he didn't work out for you i actually love the dodgers i think i think the dodgers are are and have been as classy an outfit as, as uh as anybody, I don't, I don't hate the Dodgers. I grew up or played with jellyfish with San Francisco base, so I've learned a lot about that rivalry <laughs> and honor that. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, just being able to talk about baseball with anybody these days is fun <laughs> for me.
0: Well, we, we also got Greg Maddox um, in his retirement years. So, uh, yeah, that was, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much. I, it was great to talk with you, and we'll have to do it again t- uh, sometime soon.
1: We'd love to. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the score music and sports podcast. You can listen to the music mentioned in this podcast by clicking the Spotify link in the description or by searching the score on Spotify. Please take a moment to leave a review and share the podcast with your friends and family for more exclusive interviews and playlists. Subscribe to the score music and sports podcast now.